Welcome to episode 25 of the Been There Done Map podcast. And you are joined by Lily Brazel online via the Zoom and myself, Matthew DeLoyer. My last piece, Upstream, spread far and wide. It hit home with past and present elite athletes and coaches from across the globe. Parents, young hockey players, spectators, businesswomen and men, academics and more, all of whom cried out versions of Me Too. Upstream was full of heart. I laid it all out just so I could breathe again. I exhaled hard and my next inhale was full of connection and conversation from the most unexpected places. I shared my truth and so people began to share theirs with me. As stories, insights and worries from readers flooded my screen, something became very clear. The issues I raised in Upstream extended far beyond hockey at the elite level. The issues trickled into all levels, all sports, all countries, all industries. As I read the emails and messages, I felt the pain of every story and I sensed there was an un, a united cry for help for better. Through the power of words and storytelling, the murky waters that I had reached, reached upstream started to clarify and a reflection emerged. I realized that sport is a mirror of society and at the moment, the reflection isn't great. I sensed it was time to challenge the reflection in the mirror. So I sat with all the emails, all the words, all the stories, and I felt. I let myself sit with my pain and others' pain, with the others' hopes and my own. And after all the feeling and sitting, I began to think. I have to feel before I can think, something my partner often finds frustrating. But it's how I make sense of things. I'm kinesthetic. I have to feel it before I, I can know it. In my thinking, I wondered, what is sport reflecting back at us? When we stand in front of the mirror, when we look at sport, what is it showing us about the world? After much time in my thinking phase and staring into the mirror, it became evident that what, it, what is happening in sport is reflective of what is happening in the world at a larger and deeper scale. In the mirror of sport, four reflections have emerged that I believe require deep exploration. I've decided to put names to these reflections as a starting point for making sense of them. The inequality of gender, the mining of athletes, the calamity of excellence, and the zoning of violence. Each of these reflections deserve their own space to be explored, analyzed, and solved, but here are my opening thoughts. The inequality of gender. When we look at sport, we see men's sport dominate the media and profits. When we look at sport, we see 9% of females in coaching positions at the Olympics. When the athlete cohort is 50-50, what does this show us about the world? The mining of athletes. When we look at sport, we see its high economic value dictate decision-making. We see a valuable resource that is mined, marketed, and sold for the benefit of the few. What is this showing us about the world? The calamity of excellence. When we look at sport, we see the weight of winning at all costs destroy the human side, human inside the athlete. When we look at sport, we see the just do it narrative, disrespect individual differences and needs. What does this show us about the world? The zoning of violence. When we look at 
when we look at sport, we see competition, aggression, physicality, and blood championed and cheered. We see violence zoned into sport to allow for peaceful existence. What does this zoning of violence into places where we can either cheer for it or be free from it show us about the world? So what is sport showing us? The mirror that sport holds reveals an ugly truth about the world. A world where we still where we are still far from achieving real gender equality and dismantling the myths, the stereotypes and categorization of gender. A world where profits and performance trump our people and our planet. A world where violence is zoned into the fringes of our, of our cities or into distant places around the globe or onto sporting fields so that we can experience the peace and attainment of our privilege, our privilege affords us. These reflections require much more of my thinking and that's what I sense I need to do. Sit, feel, think and write in the hope of finding tangible solutions to create a blueprint for sport which can lead us into the world we also desperately need. Why? Because I've also been curious to understand the world around me rather than accept it as it is. And I feel a sense of duty to understand and learn from my experience in sport and those of other athletes too. And because sport has extreme influence with its global platform and unconditional support from fans. It has a voice and a power that has the ability to affect large scale change. It offers a lot of good to the world, but at the moment, the power and potential of sports good is encumbered by its failure to challenge the world it reflects. It's time for sport to show up and challenge these reflections, to challenge gender inequality, to challenge our profit and performance-driven society, to challenge where we have put violence and maybe, just maybe, break some damn mirrors. And that was written by Lily, yours truly. Um, <laughs> quite, it's, yeah, quite an, an emotional piece, and I encourage those who um, to go into your blog and to read um, what you wrote or what you mentioned at the start um, upstream, which is quite an emotional piece as well. Um, hearing that back, does does um, your thoughts change? Because oh, you wrote that about ten months ago. There's yeah. The time. Has your thoughts changed at all, or has it evolved much from from that piece? Um, it's funny when you, uh, told me that you were going to read mirrors, I was like, oh shit, I forgot I wrote that. <laughs> um, and I, I went back and read it and I was like, yeah, damn, I made some really good points in that. And just as you're reading it, um, my mind definitely hasn't shifted on, on the thoughts that I put together there. And, um, yeah, that was about 10 months ago and it's still, there's still thoughts I've been exploring and writing about more offline than online at the moment um but yeah definitely they still speak uh, hold a lot of truth for me yeah well I think yeah when I switched because I was going through your blog and that definitely hit a hit a bit of a bit of a time with me as well just from basically because my background is in strength initiating in team sports as well and it kind of I see it in a weird spot like also like treating like an athlete and, and the individual seeing an individual person and spending you know a lot of time you know in the gym sometimes without coaches around you get to know an athlete well but then also I see on the performance coaching side of it as well and you want to try to get the most and you know be as competitive as I am you want to win and try to get as most out of them as you can so it's kind of a 
awkward balance, but it's good to kind of mm. hear from an athlete's perspective how it affects them, I guess, because it was quite an emotional piece, I guess, from your end as well. So I guess probably the best way to kind of get into it is probably go back to where it started for you. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I started playing hockey when I was seven. My sister played as well and my mum was just really keen to get us to try a team sport and we'd been, we were dancers and I was really bad. So mum was like, go play hockey, give it a, give it a shot. Um, and turned out, you know, we were pretty good at it. My sister um, played uh, junior Aussie for, in junior Aussie teams as well. Um, and my brothers played for New South Wales at the AHL level. So, yeah, we came to... So you're not from Perth? No, not from Perth. Uh, um, yeah, from New South Wales, grew up in Sydney. Oh, wow. Yeah. In the, in so, the city, you weren't, you weren't country? No, I'm not a country person, which is a bit odd for a hockey player. Mm. Uh, yeah, most most of the most of the girls from New South Wales or other, other states often hail from the country, but, yeah, grew up in the big city of Sydney. <laughs> and it was a pedigree in your family, was there, a bit of... You kind of ran yeah, mum's, my grandpa, mum's dad started the St. Patrick's Hockey Club in Canberra and so he's a bit of a, a well-known name down in the old Canberra hockey circles. <laughs> so mum played, um, wasn't very good, sorry mum, but uh, yeah, she played and so did my uncles. Um, but dad was an AFL player, a pretty good one, and... Yeah, when it came time for us to stop dancing, mum looked for the local hockey club and, and signed us all up. Oh, wow. And it started when you were seven, is that right? Were you yeah, yeah wow. seven. Mm. And just exponential growth, like you went off the club and, and as you kind of got older, you got selected for representative programs and, and all of that? Yeah, um, I probably, I was, I sucked my first year. Um, I had no idea which way it was what, um, but then also clicked and yeah quite quite quickly uh, I was playing um yeah in representative teams in New South Wales then making my first New South Wales team and often playing um a couple of age groups up as well so broke mum and dad's bank accounts with lots of national championships around <laughs> Australia um yeah and then I made my first junior Aussie team when I was 16. Oh, goodness. So did you get picked up in the, the um, N-Swiss program for hockey state? Yeah, I think I started with N-Swiss at 15. Yeah, wow. Dude, that's early. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, was quite early. I At 15, I was finishing year 10. Yeah. And then I actually did my year 11 and 12 via distance education I didn't go to school um hockey became like pretty serious was traveling a lot and also just didn't like school people I, like I was a nerd I loved school but I found myself much more I, I much enjoyed much preferred my own company and yeah learnt taught myself at home basically yeah right so so that was well so who taught you home like your parents or no, um, it's this, yeah, it's like an online HSC program that I did. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And that was that allowed you to, to still compete hockey at a high level? 
yeah, yeah, allowed me to travel a fair bit with hockey, not miss out on school, um, and get you know go to early morning trainings, sleep, then do schoolwork when I wanted, rather than trying to rush to and from school and training. Yeah, that's interesting. I never, yeah, I never really heard of of anyone yeah. doing that. Or do you feel like that helped at all? Do you feel like you missed out on anything? Um, no, I don't really think I missed out. Like, I'm, yeah, I'm sure I would have had fun if I went to school and but I just, I didn't really connect um, very much. I, I, I did connect with my school friends, but I just much preferred my hockey friends and want to spend as much time at hockey. And I was a pretty like self, self-starter self and was found like setting up my own school program pretty easy. It didn't really need too much um, monitoring. And you did all that when you were 16, 17? Yeah. Oh, holy <laughs> shit. If I was... Well, I would even had it at the time of shoelaces, 16. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's wild. So were you obviously that young age was a driven, it was 100% into, into hockey? Yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, obsessed. There was nothing There was nothing else? You, you, nothing else. It was all, all the eggs in that basket or were you at school trying to push like you were working things out for a post-career? Um, I was, yeah, really into my education as well. Like I wanted to get a good HSC mark. Not that I got anything amazing, like I'm not crazy book smart intelligent. Um, but yeah, still I like being good at things. I so I wanted to do well at school. Um, and I was really I was really into architecture and also politics, mm-hmm. which I the first degree I went into was architecture. Yeah. Um, turned out I wasn't so good at maths, which I already knew, but didn't want to do so much mathematics. Uh, so then I went into a Bachelor of Arts in politics. Oh, wow. That's interesting. What was yeah. that? Was there anything that was in that time that that drew you to that kind of field? Like was there anything going on in, in the world that interested you in that sort of area? Do you remember? Um, that was about 2014-15. The only thing I remember was that I just wanted to write essays. That's all I wanted to do. And I maybe had this dream that I was going to be like the next female prime minister. So I was like, I'm going to go study politics. Not that I was, I wasn't into politics, but I just liked writing and well, yeah, wanted to be a prime minister, which I don't but <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> so you don't follow politics um, at the moment, anything that's going on? Um, I do. Like I, I mean, I'm always, yeah, keep an eye out, see what's going on. Um, but I think in Australia we're generally quite turned off or ignorant to, yeah. to politics. I, yeah. I, like, I, like to, I like to keep an ear out um, what's going on over in America just because I know it's there's such a big world player and generally whatever happens over there trickles down to its allies, yeah. which is us. So, yeah, I always try to keep an ear out. Um, I'm not sure if you know, it's called, a, it's called the Breaking Points Podcast and they generally do a pretty mm-hmm. good overview of uh, American politics and what's going on. It's like an unfiltered news network. They don't have any... Well, one of the well, they got two co-hosts. One's like the left, one's on the right, and they give unbiased opinions. And it's not really marketed. No big money players, like no sponsors yeah. or anything like that. They're all okay. Kind of on there. So you've what's ever, it called? Uh, the breaking points. The breaking points. Like Crystal, know. Crystal and Saga. Yeah, right at the end. It's actually, Ooh. and they have three podcasts a week, and they do like a subscription. Like you can subscribe to them on Substack, and you can get um, like no ads and all this sort of stuff. You get the video. Yeah like a day early and that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Um, so when did you get selected into the, the national program? Was that a couple of years after? 
Uh, I thought it was going to be a couple of years after. I probably had a bit of an ego when I was younger. Um, humble, but I had a little bit of like a hidden ego. And I so I moved to Perth when I was eighteen. So I finished. Oh I finished my HSC. Finished Year Twelve. Next year, I moved to Perth. They used to have these um, uh, like junior scholarships. Yep. So when you move to Perth and Hockey Roo Squad, you're on like an AAS scholarship. Yep. At that time, this was 2013, they were running sort of a bit of a more junior pathway thing where they would have maybe maybe there was four or five of us on junior scholarships. Yep. So I went over for a year, um, wasn't in the Hockey Roo Squad, but was training with them and I thought like, yeah, it's going to be my big break. Like I was, you know, going to play for the Hockey Roos that year. Uh, we had our Junior World Cup in Germany that year. I think we came six. We did terribly. Um, and then after that, I had an operation on both my calves. I had compartment syndrome, so yeah. I had that sorted out. Yeah, For anyone that doesn't know what that is, it's when your calves, when you exercise, they basically turn to rock and it's really painful. <laughs> yeah, you have to cut it to get it released. Cut it open, essentially cut, it yeah, open, cut the muscle open to release the pressure. Yeah. You have a nasty, um, do you have a nasty scar? I do. Oh. I do. But oh, I quite like them. <laughs> how big, how long are they? Do you have, have you measured the centimetres? Oh, I have measured it, but like, yeah, longer than a finger. A finger. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that didn't go to plan. I ended up, yeah, had the operation. I moved back to Sydney. Um, and, yeah, my sort of pathway to towards playing for the Hockey Roos took a bit of a different direction. Um, my personal life was a bit of a mess, had this operation and was just, yeah, 18, 19, 20-year-old trying to sort out the mess of my life. Um, so I didn't end up debuting for Hockey until I was 22. Okay, wow. So there was a bit of – you said, the, said just before you had a bit of an ego. Was that from, like <laughs> – you didn't realize it at the time, but obviously you reflected back. Mm. And, yeah, realized where you go. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think that kind of like led to that kind of egotistic kind of nature? Like, do you feel like there was anything particular? Yeah, it's. I've been reflecting on it a lot lately because I've been doing a lot of um, memoir style writing, um, and I think from a really young age, I've been obsessed with being good at things mm. and. I noticed that people liked me when I was good at things. Like I was a teacher's pet at school. I liked being really good at hockey and people seemed to like me when I was good. Um, and that kind of fed into just like wanting to be the best. And then when I started to be quite good and making teams at an earlier age, I was like, oh, maybe I could be the best here. And, yeah, I started to maybe build a bit of a, an ego. <laughs> mm. Well, not that it's a bad thing. I think ego is definitely no. useful uh, for certain things to get yourself to work and work hard at things. When things get hard, you want to work, want to push yourself a bit further. But do you feel like you had to strip, like obviously when you had your injury, you had to move back to Sydney. Did you have to realise you have to strip it back and kind of humble yourself a little bit and move forward? Yeah, I think for me it was really sorting out um, probably – a mix of things, but really sorting out my life away from hockey and not mm. having hockey be everything yeah. to me. Um, because what if I wasn't 
good? What if it turned out like it has now where I'm not playing anymore? What was Lily, who was Lily going to be without hockey? So I think I spent a fair few years just trying to enjoy my life and create um, things outside of hockey that maybe kept me a bit more grounded and that I could that I could connect with and spend time with um, rather than having this one obsession. So, so what about, that's interesting. So what did you do in that time? It was just. Um, what did I do? That's a good question. Well, I got really into uni. Like I did really like my uni degree. Um, I ended up, I eventually moved to Melbourne um, and just through different jobs and people that I met, just finding different interests and different networks of people and friends, whether that was through work or family or yoga. Um, yeah, just having different interests and networks, um, yeah, it became quite important to me. Did you keep hockey up at that stage or like a club level? Yeah, I was playing. So when I moved to Melbourne, I was always, I was in the VIS um, yep. and I was, yeah, playing club hockey um, the Footscray and then I started playing for Victoria yeah. at national level. Yeah. So, Sorry, New South Wales. <laughs> <laughs> uh, did, so I'm not too sure about then, but now I know that the institutes, they take a lot of time with the athletes to kind of work out outside life, I guess, like uni, making sure they're all looked after mm. from an athlete wellness kind of standpoint. When you were that age and younger, was that, uh, uh, I guess, was that afforded to you at all? Or was that, is this just a recent thing that's been up in the, in the systems? Um, yeah, it was still definitely when I was in Answoos, like I was doing my um, my HFC, so that was quite important. And the coach I had at the time, who's still one of my favourite coaches, Anthony Thornton, he was quite um, big on yeah making sure like schoolwork came first. So he was he was a good person to have on side, and we did have a back. I can't remember what the program at Instance was called back then, but we did have those athlete wellbeing education offices that supported you um, with uni or, or or high school, whatever whatever you were up to. Um, so yeah, there was definitely definitely that support in in and Swiss and in BIS. Yeah. So you were in Victoria playing well. And you got afforded, or you got offered to come back, or they selected you to come back into the national program. Was that yeah. was that a surprise? Were you expecting that because you were focusing on on the outside things as much, or was it still a focus, or like a little bit of a yeah, a make it back? Um, it's definitely still a, 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 like a strong focus, and I'm yeah, still training really hard. I loved training. I loved working hard. Um, and we had an AHL tournament in Perth at the end of. 2017 I was playing for Victoria and after that tournament we won that tournament wait was that the one we won or maybe we lost that one I I get the years confused anyway but at the end of that tournament 2017 I found out I was going to debut for the Hockey Roos in a tournament coming up in the next couple of months um and yeah I, I just remember being at that tournament and not really being something that was too strongly on my mind but I played well um I was like I was just having fun I was yeah in a really good in a really good headspace and I remember when I got the email so I used to work at this is 
kind of embarrassing, but it was a great job. I worked at Grilled when I was in Melbourne for for like a year and a half. So mm. fun. If anyone, Grilled's a burger joint. I don't know if you have overseas listeners, but I was making burgers. It was fun. She's all right. Anyway. She's all right. Just my mum listens to the podcast. <laughs> Just your mum. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, I was at work and jacked my phone and I had all these messages from people being like, oh, my God, Will, congrats. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then they're like, check your emails. So then I checked that email. And when you find out you're selected in, ho- in the hockey ruse for every tournament, you just get an email. Yeah. Um, so I opened up this email and it had, like, the team list. And I squealed in, like, the restaurant and then just broke down crying. Oh, no. And it was like, what's going on? I was like, <laughs> I need to go call my mom. <laughs> oh, no. That's hilarious. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it was it was a surprise in not in that, like, oh, was it good enough to be there? But just, like, yeah. I was just in a good space and, I don't know, didn't have any, ex, like, big expectations and, it, yeah. yeah, it came about. That's interesting because you hear a lot of stories from a lot of people who, who kind of, you know, they take a step back or they don't always put the sport as, like, a central being of themselves. They kind of you know, explore other things and still, like, you know, compete at a high level, but, mm. you know, take their time outside to, like, enjoy life, not to, you know, when they're yeah. not at the club, they think, what is it about that? They, what do you think is that? Like, you know, you, you're able to kind of recharge the batteries, you know, when you're outside of the club environment and then when you go in, you're 100%, like, you know what I mean, trying to, trying to mm. say? It's an interesting think, kind of thing. Yeah, I think it helps. One, I think it helps give perspective on life. Like yeah. you're just playing a game. Whatever sport it is, you're just playing a game. The result does not matter at all. doesn't affect the world. Who cares if you lose? Mm. Um, so just to get a bit of perspective that the score on the hockey game is not going to change the world. Um, and then, yeah, I, I feel like that's, yeah, maybe that's just the biggest thing to get a bit of bit of perspective on life and then <clears throat> maybe get a bit more mature yeah. as well maybe that was a little bit it did you yeah during that time did you do like journaling or anything like that because i know there's this um company that do this journal it's called inner i think it's called inner game journal and they have this like little piece that has like um like your gratitude like what are you grateful for things like that then that's also like a perspective thing as well like being able to just sit back and and to kind of take your head away what's more important than the actual sport that you want to be good at is also what are you happy for outside of the sport and it kind of puts things into its perspective and what's balanced yeah <clears throat> yeah um I, I don't recall doing that much before I debuted but definitely in my first sort of year in the hockey breweries but I do remember um a mentor of mine my coach from Footscray in Melbourne there were definitely still times where I was I was still really hung up on mm. like, I wanted to be a hockey a hockey roo. I like I knew I was good enough to get there, but it just it felt like it just felt a bit out of reach. And he would often say to me, How do you eat an elephant? And the first time he said that I was like, I don't know, he was one bite at a time. And so his mindset was always just, you know, step by step, if if that's where you want to go and get to, just take it slow like there's no rush to get there um yeah so that was probably something that helped me a fair bit during that time as well that's interesting one how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time 
you don't think because when you're in the moment, it's all so big and, and so hard. Mm. But it's just, you know, yes. like you lose one bottle at a time. Yeah. <laughs> so when you, so you got selected, you came back, you obviously moved back to Perth and all that. Yeah. And what year was that? 2015? I debuted end of 2017, moved to Perth, start of 2018. Yeah. So how did it all go on from there? So what's, so you moved back, you're playing, training. How did it yeah. all go? Did it? Did you fit in? Eat well. I hated it at first because mm. I didn't want to leave Melbourne. I loved my life in Melbourne. I loved the city itself, and I just thought Perth was so boring, <laughs> and I didn't want to live there. Um, and I was pretty against it at the start. Um, and I was trying to work out a deal where I could still be in the team, but like just commute or like FIFO hockey. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a long way to FIFO, Melbourne to Perth. Yeah, uh, it didn't go down so well. Yeah. Um, so I really had to, and this was advice from my VIS coach at the time and a few other of my um, Victorian friends who were in the hockey ruse that I feel like you just, you had to go all in with your life in Perth Otherwise, it just wasn't going to work. And that's probably what I didn't do the first time. One, I was 18. I was a bit of an idiot. But I was also just disconnected from life in Perth and I wanted to be elsewhere. I mean, I was out of home, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, when I moved, when I decided to move, um, I made a yeah, big commitment to really throw myself into like, okay, I'm living in Perth now. This is my life and trying to set my my whole life up here, not just Lily's hockey life. Okay. Mm. So, so how long did that process take? Do you it was like a obviously it would have been an instant thing. Well, about a month, month or two. Oh no, a lot longer than that. Lot longer. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, it was probably hard for the first. Um, I'd say six, seven months, especially with a lot of travel as well, and that's always the hard thing. You move yeah. to a new city for sport. You're maybe trying to make friends, whether it's maybe you're working another job or maybe you're at uni or <laughs> yeah. I was even trying to make friends on like Bumble. Like you, there's Bumble for friends. I was like, I'm just going <laughs> to try and make friends anywhere. Um, but, you are you know, you might be in Perth for two weeks, then you go away for three weeks and you come back yeah. for two weeks and it's really hard to get some consistency in your life and new friendships. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it took, it took a while to to get settled and, and be comfortable with life in Perth yeah. and probably finding meeting my partner helped a lot with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. So where did you, where did you meet? Uh, funnily enough, through hockey, he oh. works for um, one of the hockey companies, Griffin, oh, yeah. and I was looking Sticks, for a new yeah. stick sponsor um, and signed on board with Voodoo, who Griffin owned as well. Oh, there you go. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I forget, like, well, especially the last couple of years, um, hockey, you haven't been able to travel much at all. Well, the national program hasn't been able to travel at all. And then yeah. you were saying three weeks gone, two weeks back, it's hard to kind of even have a job, yeah. have friends outside, even if you're uni, hard to catch up in uni, you weren't even there to study, all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, it would have been, would have been very difficult to, to find friends or to have a life outside of hockey yeah is it it's it's hard because it's because it's such a national program you clearly it's not you don't make a lot of money it's hard to kind of um 
you know, support yourself and, and have a job or find a job that lets you or have, gives you the freedom to go to training and, and do all the commitments you have to. Did you, what else did you do outside of hockey? Did you have to work um, or did you were able to have a, um, a do you have a, uh, what's it called? They have, you know, you can go to a house. Um, house sitting. House, yeah, not house sitting. Um, if you're like 18, you can go over, you got a sponsor house or something like that, isn't it? Oh, okay. I can't remember what it's called. Anyway. I don't know what that's called. Anyway, anyway. I didn't have one of those. <laughs> um, I My first year there, I was finishing my last year of uni, um, but that was online, but it's, yeah, it took up yeah. a fair, fair chunk of time. So I was doing that pretty much full time. Um, so, yeah, first year I was finishing off my uni degree and then the end of that year I was starting to set up uh, my own um circular sportswear business oh, yeah. that has now been running for three years <laughs> so you said so you started that up when you for your after the year you came back after you finished uni yeah 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 um that sounds like it would be a, a massive task to kind of yeah it was it's <laughs> a hindsight again what an undertaking um uh, but yeah, so a bit of a long story short, my uh, business is called Stature. It's a circular sportswear brand that sort of came about with my frustration for sporting uniforms. Um, when you, with the hockey roos, like we get so much uniform every year and it's always packaged in plastic, made of crap materials, made overseas. Um, and I was quite sensitive to sustainable fashion and ethical fashion and so I did a bit of research into the sporting uniform industry and found a lot of stuff I didn't like so decided I'd have a go at it myself couldn't start a sporting uniform business straight away so moved into general sporting running apparel I never call it active wear because I hate that (laughs) um so, do, you take offense, do you take offense to active wear? Yeah, I do. Like, it's not active wear. This is like clothes when you're actually exercising, not getting a cup of coffee. Yeah. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So, yeah. So, you so you got into that. So, that because it was three years, like, how did you get Like, how do you start one of them? Like, do you just find like Google how to start a, how to start a, um, oh man the stuff you google when you're starting a business is always so funny but yeah I had to like I was googling everything I, I didn't know how to start a business I knew nothing about the production of clothing um marketing anything like that so yeah a fair bit of research went into it at the start um and I mean how did I I don't know just a whole lot of research like I wanted to know I was really I've become a bit of a fabric nerd. Like I'm really <laughs> obsessed with how how the fabric of all of our clothing is produced. So from the fibre, where it's yeah. grown, what it's made out of, the impact that has on the soil or if it's not a natural fibre, the impact that it's had on its extraction or its production, where it's made, how it's put together, what impacts that has on the environment and people yeah. and then how that gets turned into a garment. Um so yeah, a lot of research, a lot of nerding about, um, and yeah, launched Stature in twenty nineteen. Yeah, wow. Oh, so that's only that's two wild. years. Yeah, yeah, two years. That's wild. What year? Did, I don't know where we are. <laughs> did you um? So, like, 
it's obviously it's running starting a business is very expensive. How does it like? Do you do you have to take a loan out to start, or obviously it would have been a big risk? To, yeah. To start um, don't start a product business is my first advice. <laughs> um, no, it's been it's been great and I and I do I do love it. Um, but I was just a good saver, so I had it was all my own own money, which was smart. I don't have any debt. Um, just don't have any savings anymore. Um, but yeah, I was yeah pretty adamant on getting it self funded and up and going. I'm, in a stage now where I do really need a bit of an influx from, from other sources to not to keep it viable, but to keep it, keep it as something that can be making profit. Yeah. Right. Well, um, mm. yeah, well, I'm sure I'll tag it all down the bottom in the, in the <laughs> yeah, comments and stuff. Everything. So well, like, yeah, we'll shout it out, make sure it's tagged and, um, <laughs> to try to try to keep it going for you because I know especially starting a podcast is not easy and trying to get people yeah. to listen to it and to share it out there is important. So more more reach is is the best. Is it you that sits yeah. at the top? You don't have anyone else involved. You're the yeah, CEO. no, it's just me. Yeah, right. it's just me. I've had um uh, my auntie help out a little bit just with like graphic design stuff or um. She's sort of just been a bit of a, a mentor, a bit of a, a back and forth for me. Um, but yeah, it's just just been me. All right. Yeah. So, so once so you went into the so you got back into the hockey, you took a year. Was the goal to make so you obviously you went in, was 20, was after the Rio Olympics you joined backups in 2017. Yeah. Yep. Was the aim, yeah. was the aim was Tokyo, right? Yeah. So what for sure. what happened there? Well, let's go. <laughs> Oh Lord! Um, yes, yes, yes. So yeah, twenty nineteen comes around, and we have Pro League, um, which was was awesome, but also wasn't awesome for those of you who don't know. Pro League um, was this home and away series across the world for the for the eight, not the eight top teams, but the eight teams in the world who could afford to do Pro League. Um, so, yeah, we're basically travelling from one country to the other to just play one game in this big six-month-long tournament. It was pretty cool, but it was a lot of travel and that really wore me down in the end. Um, so, yeah, it was 2019. Then we qualified for Tokyo Olympics against Russia, played my 50th game that game, and then 2020 rolls around and I'm fit. Pre-season's been great. Everyone's excited. It's the Olympic year. Feeling pretty good. And then this, like, COVID thing pops up. Oh, what's this coronavirus? (laughs) Um, And, yeah, slowly but surely over, yeah, the end of February, March, the world starts to change and then we find out that the Olympics have been postponed. Um, And... Look, there's a lot I can get into, so I'm going to give you the short version and then you can throw questions at me. Yeah. So for those of you that don't know or haven't read Upstream, yeah, I was training for the Olympics, COVID happened, I was actually really relieved because I was miserable but wasn't admitting it to myself. Um, And then, yeah, our program got shut down 
for a couple of months. The Olympics got postponed to 2021. I was in a pretty dark space, not sure if I wanted to, or not sure if I could continue in the headspace that I was in. Um, asked to take some time off away from the program to, to look after myself. They said no. I said, see you later. Um, so I didn't want to be involved in a program that operated like that. And now here I am, ask away. Yeah. <laughs> so probably I want to go back to, I think, because mm. um, I read Upstream and then one of the things that stood out to me was the, the, uh, the qualifying game against Russia. Mm. And you said, as you kind of do a pre-game kind of thing, you sit around, just you girls, and you could, the sense of the room was, they, everyone was scared, but no one was admitting it to themselves because of the fear. Mm. That's correct, isn't it? That's top yeah, yeah, yeah. So what kind of interests me was the fact that there was this, that I think there is this, everyone fears it, but then you it's a fear of admitting it to yourself. What is that? Like that's something that doesn't, and you felt like it kind of affected the room, the vibe in the room. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. We would for maybe a year or so, we were doing this thing before a game. It was either yeah, the, the night or the day before a game. We would sometimes it was the players, sometimes it was the players and the coaches. We would sit in a room, we'd go around in a circle, and it was a chance to try. I'm doing bunny ears, try to be honest about yes. how we were feeling about the game because big tournaments, big games, big big rivalries that we're playing against, it's scary. You're going to be nervous. Like you're not always walking. You're not walking into a game against Holland feeling like absolutely fine. Um, so, yeah, it was, a, it was these circles were a chance to, yeah, just voice how you're feeling and hopefully just by voicing it, it maybe calms the nerves or you could get some help from someone or come game time, you know, your teammate, you know, knows a little bit more that you're feeling a bit off today and can, can talk you up a little bit more. Um, so yeah, in this, it was our quality. So we had to win against Russia to make the Olympics and it was a game we should have won. Like Russia were ranked outside the top 20. We'd never seen them play live. We just had a few bits of footage from, Euros, I think it was. Um, so, yeah, a bit of an unknown opposition. And, yeah, there was the huge pressure of having to qualify. And we're sitting in this room and everyone sort of went around just saying their standard responses. Like there were people I knew exactly what they were going to say because they started saying the same thing every time. Yeah. And then that was no longer a truthful, honest, there's no yeah. way you feel that way before every game. I'm sorry, no matter how good of an athlete you are, like your emotions ebb and flow. Yeah. Um, and so it just kept, so it became these, yeah, real of responses and I was getting quite frustrated at my teammates' inability to either reflect on their emotions and understand themselves or be brave enough to admit things. And I think that was mm. a big sense that I felt that in this room, there wasn't a sense of trust, whether with the coaches or without, that you could speak honestly and not be reprimanded for what you say. And even if it's just, I feel nervous today. What if you say you feel nervous, then you don't play tomorrow? Like you're not on the starting lineup. You don't uh, play as many minutes because the coach is worried, oh, you know, this person's nervous, shouldn't put her on the field. Yeah. 
So there's that, yeah, you were scared of the repercussions of your if you're feeling right or not. Like if whatever you mm. if you felt, yeah, because if you felt you were nervous and then that's the wrong feeling to have over a game, then you'll be punished by a coach to sit out or but like, yeah, but yeah, but with, yeah, did you but would the coach do that though? Like you wouldn't surely, you know, you'd you'd like to think that that wouldn't happen. Is this there's the trust broken down the barrier or there's no trust there? Yeah, I think there was there was lack a of lack of trust between the players and the coaching staff. Um, look, whether or not that that did ever transpire, yeah. I don't know. But in general, there wasn't trust within our team. Um, and yeah, so there was there there was no safe space. Yeah. To then those the thing like that doesn't is as a is a mute point in there because you're wasting your time because no one's you're not getting mm. anything out of it. Did you ever yeah. feel that you could be honest in there or not? Um, yeah, I mean, if yeah, you've obviously read mirrors, you've read upstream and aware of where I've ended up today because speaking honestly is something mm. I stand by. Um, and, yeah, so I've always had the courage, I suppose, to, to speak what I felt was true. Um, sometimes... That was a successful thing. Other times, yeah, I did get reprimanded for it, which I mentioned in upstream. Yeah. Do you, it's interesting because do, would you be aware that if you would be honest that you could cost you a spot or could cost you a place in the, in the side at all? Or you just didn't like, the, the truth had to come out whether it was you're saying the thing that you needed to say no matter what the consequences were? Yeah, I think for me, I never, I never, maybe at the time I did, like as it got, as it got closer to the the Olympics that were meant to happen, um, I was, um, yeah, I did start to get nervous about my own selection and, um, and there weren't any moments where I like chose not to speak up when the Olympics were meant to happen. Um, but for me, the the fear of non-selection or the impact that it might have on me never really made me fearful enough to not speak up because I often, like, I felt like I was doing it for the team most of the time. Like uh, things that yeah. I had to say were what everyone was thinking, what everyone was feeling, but one wanted to say um and yeah I just I just always had this like strong pull that I had to say that someone had to say it otherwise yeah we'd just sit in this room of whys all the time. Mm. Was there like a moment in your life that you can point to where because not everyone has like um Mm. has that type of potential like just to yes not be fearful like to speak up and be honest do you was there a point in time where you were like this is probably or did someone say something to you that flicked a switch and said i'm going to be honest like this from now on or like and not be afraid of the consequences or <laughs> or is it just something that just kind of is a part of your your personality personality i think it's a part of my personality but yeah. um i do have <clears throat> i do have like a few memories at school of 
me like maybe like sticking it to the principal to like <laughs> fight something righteous, like or something like something stupid at school. Um, but yeah, I think it's just been something ingrained in me, probably a little bit from my mum. Yeah, who just maybe like encouraged me to to stand up for myself. And I think I have a bit of a sensitive heart and that probably bled into standing up for for others. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, was there a, in that kind of period, did you, and you felt like there was, the trust and team was lacking. Did you feel like you were, you were trying to bring the team together and get them to open up, but they was like a hesitancy to kind of, feel the same way Um, yeah I think our group was quite divided I think there were there were people on board who um yeah probably spoke up as much as I did um and then there were others who would probably never do that because they're they're consumed with their own their own selection and and I don't I don't blame that attitude yeah. at all like I totally totally get it um but yeah I think we we're a bit divided on how to approach an environment that we knew wasn't working for us yeah some were just like we've just got to accept it like let's just get to Tokyo that was a mindset of a few then there was oh, let's, like, try, see what we can do. Like, let's be nice, but let's see. And then there are others who, like, no, let's call it out. Like, let's say it how it is. Yeah. I guess mm-hmm. it's, it's such a difficult situation as well because we're so close to to the mm-hmm. um, Tokyo Olympics that that's really hard to, if, you know, what do you, you make changes so close and whatever, if it ruins the chance of the Olympics, but then mm-hmm. all the way around, what if we don't ever change it and, nothing ever goes right again you know what I mean so it's, it's yeah so you can definitely see both sides and to every other every other person's angle but mm. you know, how it happened it's, it's how it's happened now isn't it yeah yeah and then then obviously you got denied leave essentially and as well you wrote up in upstream that you didn't get along well with the psych at the Shelly was that yeah. right it, yeah because it's such a difficult thing to kind of get down into it and then the trust again, um, how does that kind of work your way around? Was there other avenues you could go down to speak to other people as well outside and get an, uh, get an opinion about how to approach the situation? Yeah, so I was at the time seeing a psych through the AIS, Mental Health Referral Network, so... If your sport is governed by the Australian Institute of Sport, you as an athlete have access to psychologists in this mental health program. Mm-hmm. Um, so if your sport, so if the psychologist hockey employees, if you as an athlete don't want to see them but you still want to see a psychologist, you can see someone for free through this referral network, which is what I was doing at the yeah. time. Um, which... I mean, yeah, it's 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 helpful, <laughs> but um, I guess a psych necessarily isn't there to give you advice or take action for you. They're more Correct. of a sounding yeah. board, yeah. Especially as a third party like that. Um, so 
yeah, it was it was a really challenging time to to have my mental health denied by people from the organisation of Hockey Australia who have a duty of care towards me. I felt very, um, I think the term's like gaslit, like I, I felt a bit crazy. Like was I, mm. was I really, maybe I am okay. Like there were thoughts like maybe there's nothing wrong with me and I'm not making up, like I'm dramatising it. Like maybe I'm fine, maybe I should just shut up and, and keep going and, and get on with the job. But the more I spoke to my parents and my partner who are very good sounding boards for making sure I'm not irrational. <laughs> um, the more I spoke to them, I guess the clearer it became that one, I was extremely unhappy and not like, I don't like saying just unhappy. Like I was depressed. I had terrible anxiety. Yeah, I was I was not well. Mm. And so, yeah, that, so, yeah, one, that my feelings were real and two, that their approach to that was not okay. Um, so to have that confirmed by my support network um, was quite important for me to be able to make the decision I did to, um, I guess, sort of reject their, their ultimatum of, yeah. either, of either I'm in or out and um, to say, well, I'm, I'm not wanting to continue and then to also decide to speak up about what they had done. Yeah. I think that's important as well because I don't understand how. Was there, was there ever like a clarification? They ever, never went back to you after you after you rejected their ultimatum, like you said. Did they ever come back and say, I guess, I don't know, apologise or anything like that, say, well, you know, what we did was wrong, we're sorry, blah, blah, blah or... We had a lot of meetings back and forth um, because eventually a lot of meetings and emails back and forth um, and eventually I sought uh, legal guidance um, through the Equal Opportunity Commission because oh, yeah. um, I had spoken to a few mentors of mine outside of hockey and this is, this is where I think perspective away from sport helps because if you've only ever known sport if you've never had another job or been in another environment you don't necessarily know how an organization should run or or how a workplace should operate and this is a workplace yes we're not getting paid a lot but we are getting paid and we have we are full-time athletes (laughs) so it's a job and so to be able to see that or feel that this isn't how people should be treated this isn't how I've been treated in other jobs and then yeah. when you tell people from outside of hockey what's happened, their reactions, they're like, what the F? Like, that's not okay. And, again, to be reconfirmed by other people who then were able to sort of guide me in what steps I should take next um, was really helpful. And for me, going down a legal path and, and also speaking out about it, the biggest driving factor there was... I knew there was something pretty damn wrong with this organisation and I would not encourage any seven-year-old girl to pick up a hockey stick and I think that was really sad and I wanted that to change because hockey is a great sport. 
I've loved my years playing hockey, but my years playing hockey roos were pretty damn sad. And I don't think it should be like that for anyone. And so I was really driven to attempt, give like a serious attempt to try and change that. Yeah. I think it'd be pretty hard pressed to find someone who wouldn't agree with your situation. Like there's some things that go beyond sport, you know, like basically looking after, you know, your, your, your friend, your like your neighbor that, you know, they've got problems, you help them out or whatever, but does, does it scar you now? Like, would you, you know, if you were to have kids, would you want them to pick up hockey stick? Like, would you, uh, would you want them to play hockey or would you, much rather prefer them to play a different sport because I can imagine like this just because it happened in hockey you surely you can find similar situations in other sports you know yeah and and that was um that was sort of what I got out of bit in mirrors is after I wrote upstream I had so many emails like hundreds of emails upstream was read over 10,000 times it was published in the day telegraph I had a lot of feedback from so many people from different sports different industries who had similar stories so yeah I think no matter what sport your kid would play at this stage of the sporting world maybe they wouldn't have a great I'm I'm maybe painting a bit of a bad picture but I don't think it's just hockey um so if I had it's funny because my partner obviously comes from hockey as well he played for France um and yeah, someone's like, if we have kids, they're never playing hockey. <laughs> um, but I, I don't think I'd be, I'd, you know, see what they like, see what they want to do. <laughs> how, how do your, how are your feelings now towards the sport? Like, did you watch the Olympics at all? Yeah, I did. I did. I, I had this great advice. I met, I met with this dude through work. Um, his name is John Gardner and I was sitting down with him maybe a couple of months before the Olympics and he was asking me if I was going to watch them. I said, oh, I'm not too sure. Like I think it would be pretty painful to watch. And um, he said he said something like, in my experience, moving towards fear has always been a good thing or something like that. Or he's like moving towards what makes you uncomfortable is a good thing. So I was like, all right, I'm going to watch every single game. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I did. And I watched all of the women's game, like all the Aussie women's games and all of the men, Aussie men's games as well. And I loved it. I, I felt more emotional watching the men than I did the women. And the reason being is that when I see the men's team, I see a team that I would love to be a part of. I see their culture their mateship, I don't like the word mateship, but their teammanship, um, their respect, I see that and I crave to be involved in a team like that at the elite level. Then I see the women's team and I know the ins and outs of it and I didn't feel as emotionally connected to wanting to be a part of that team. I wanted to be at the Olympics for sure. Um, But then I I was also really happy watching the girls. I was happy they had a different coach. I was happy to see how well they were doing at the start. Um, and, yeah, even during the Olympics, um, one of the girls messaged me and said that a song came on while they were driving to the game and they were like, oh, it feels like Lily's here. And uh-huh. that, like, yeah, made me cry. <laughs> oh, that's it. Well, that's good. You can kind of look back look back at it and, and kind of still be able to watch the sport and have 
of those feelings towards it. Did you, um, where you were spoke about the guys you had um, sportsmanship, the respect, would those be like your core values to what mate would make like a, a, a good team in like air quotes? Um, yeah, I would say honesty. I mean, I feel like just read Brene, anything Brene Brown says, like go do that, like courage, honesty, vulnerability, respect, like, and a, a place where all of that, the ability to do that, you need to feel safe, mm. like safety. Let's make that like the key priority of a team. If you feel safe, to be yourself, to to bring ideas to the table, to perform bad, like that I feel just like drives a much more um, healthy, successful culture than an environment of fear. Yeah. Also you said um, with some of that person said to you, walk towards what makes you feel uncomfortable. I think that's what most people are scared of, of being uncomfortable. And that's also a good thing I think in a team setting like when back taking back the game before Russia, people were uncomfortable to speak mm. about how they were feeling. And I think there's something that's in us as a human, the human race is to, to go through hardship and to be uncomfortable. And it, it's better for us to, to do that. Like we work through struggles and we become stronger. Like we're more resilient after the fact. And I think we live in a society now that we, everything is so comfortable. Like we've gotten a bit softer and mm. we live in the soft bed, soft, <laughs> Couches like everything's, <laughs> you know, given to us easier, and we don't, and we lose that innate ability to to bite down and, and work harder. So yeah, I think mm. that's an interesting fact that someone, when they said that to you, and I was like, mm, that's definitely something that would work. And do you have you ever gone back and done stuff now that's been like, okay, this is a bit uncomfortable, but I'm going to work work through it. Oh, this whole year has been that. This whole year. Um, yeah, I've been looking into a pretty ugly mirror myself um, all year, and like, a, and yeah, learning a lot about myself, understanding myself, seeing where patterns and behaviors have come from, um, and that's mainly being driven by this huge sense of loss of identity. Like, I <laughs> I thought I had all these other interests and parts of myself outside of hockey, which I do, but hockey is a significant, has been a significant part of my identity for so long. So um, to no longer have that has been really, really challenging. Um, And so I've spent, yeah, a lot of this year looking into the void (laughs) And seeing what's there or what can be there. Yeah. So what? So now, obviously, there's no hockey. Do you like you gone into writing? Like, is that we've picked up from? Yeah, I think that's really um, come or like appeared and shown up as a really strong purpose mm-hmm. of mine. Um, like, yes, my my business is great, and I'm really. Um, fascinated and interested in sustainability and fabrics and except blah 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 but I think to get a bit uh spiritual I feel like my true calling and what I meant to do is write um and 
yeah, really diving into that, um, well, into I think, that now. Well, I read those upstream mirrors and all the all your blogs. It's very beautiful writing. So yeah, I think it's definitely your calling. <laughs> <laughs> um, so was there anything before that that led you into writing? Like, or did you just kind of express? like your feelings onto a piece of paper and it just kind of all just bled out because I feel like when I was reading I was like wow you're bleeding it it's all like (laughs) it's all out there um well again I am very much like my mother my mum is an author a children's author um and so I think and my my dad's a very creative person as well and I think all three of us me my brother and my sister um are quite creative and have um, a sensitivity towards writing. Um, and, I, yeah, I think growing, going through school and uni, mum was often out editor. I don't know if that was ever allowed <laughs> at school or uni, but we had an editor at home who would, you know, mum was often teaching us how to write better and write tight, like make a sentence as powerful as you can be in a mm. short space so you don't use all these um, superfluous words um so yeah it's been being really driven driven into me and I think um yeah as I've as I've gotten o- older um yeah I've just found a real a real connection with it to as a as a way of making sense of the world mm. um there's one thing I wanted to go back in um, mm. mirrors, we talked about the zoning of violence. I think that was one of the things that <laughs> is quite interesting because I feel like, as I do dabble a little bit in, in um, martial arts into the okay. you know, black belt karate, I've done doing Muay Thai now, and the whole, like, everything, you obviously martial arts is a very violent sport at the crux yeah. of it, but I've had people on the podcast, fighters on the podcast before, reading back and um, looking at, fighters outside of, of the ring in the cage, the most calmest, spiritual, maybe <laughs> a bit more like they're just relaxed. Cause I feel like, yeah. well, even sometimes I see it myself now too, like after a week of training, whatever, and I just come home and I'm just zonked in. I'm zonked because I'm tired, but also I feel more relaxed because it's a mm. uncom- that feeling again of getting to ring, standing across from someone who's going to punch me in the face. Is that uncomfortable position I'm in and it's the fact that I'm humble I'm humbling myself putting my skills up against someone mm. else's skills in the spine and then testing to see how good I am even if it doesn't work out yeah. so yeah it's interesting because it's I feel like sport itself is kind of a regression of what violence is like because if you look back to, to um I guess when we were hunter gatherers and we would always fight over dominance and the tribes and all of this. I feel like sport is a regression of that because you've got, you know, if you look at fighting, it's probably the most primal of that. Like you've got two people in the ring against each other, but then you go into team sports, you've got at the crux of it, it's two teams against each other trying to vie for who's more dominant mm. over the mm. season. Mm. So I feel like violence is, like, it's hard to say violence because some teams is violence, but I feel like maybe you're getting more out of the violence of, you know, sometimes there's, positions inside a team and you're fighting for positions in a team <laughs> and then there's violence like, like not that there's violence you fight against each other but there's yeah you know, you're in a kind of warrior well like you say warrior but in a 
demon, I guess, trying to fight for a position, trying to one up the your teammate because you want to make that spot. Is that kind of a little bit? Yeah, yes and no. I think so. Where the concept comes from, the zoning of violence is from an author, Tyson Yanakaporta, who's yeah. an Indigenous man, and he wrote a book. Uh, I think it maybe came out in 2019 called How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Yeah. Mind blowing book. Go and read it. Yeah. Um, That's a link at the bottom of that, isn't it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Tyson, um, it was, I don't know, I can't remember how in depth in the book it was, but he talks about how we've, we have these very privileged lives that there's no, no violence when, as you were saying back, way back when, our lives were full of violence to, to be able to survive, to, to work out who's dominant. Mm-hmm. And then as we've become more westernised, more white, more privileged, violence has been put to the fringes of our cities into like suburbs where mm-hmm. we, let's not, I, I live in Claremont, let's like pretend what's happening out in, I don't know Perth that well, in Armadale, <laughs> doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, putting it into the like subgroups of society that we don't have to pay attention to is the privilege. And then I started to reflect on that a little bit of about sport, that it's a place where we've put violence, not that it's not that sport is violent yeah. and like blood, blood and bones and whatever, but a place where people can be aggressive and fight and we can sit back and separate that from our daily privileged safe life and let that just be a space where that's acceptable um and I haven't quite yet fully made sense of all of that but it was just a little thought that I had of how um, why just the separation of having no like having this safe life but then letting violence occur in sport. That's just, yeah. I haven't yet quite yet made sense of it. Exactly, <laughs> because you're 100% right, because why can two people go and tackle each other on a football field and I can't go uh, run, across the, um, run across the road here and tackle someone? You know, there's really yeah. no difference in the fact that it's sport. Do you feel like as well, because it's a sport it's like a social gathering of everyone um and it's a spectacle it's been yeah it's made as a spectacle for people to let out an emotion yeah Mm. for people to go and watch and it's an emotional outlet for someone like who's been sitting at the desk all day and they're so angry at their boss and they can go to the football ground and yell (laughs) and let all their emotions out you know what I mean yeah it's one of those things that's yeah also what you were saying before about um how you at the end of the week of um training and doing martial arts. Yeah, Muay Thai, martial arts. I'm doing Muay Thai now. Muay Thai? Like how um, relaxed you almost feel. Mm -hmm. Is that sort of what you said? Um, I've been thinking about that a little bit um, on the, the role of sport in our lives in that we do um not it's not not an addiction but like yeah we, we get all these endorphins and we love it and we get these like really good feelings that at the end of it we're like oh 
yeah, that was good. And I've been one when I finished playing sport, I was like, man, I'm never going to get that again. <laughs> like, where am I going to get that from? That like sense of like being in flow state. Yeah. Where else am I going to get that? And I think what sport gives us, no matter what level you play at, is this opportunity to just be present in the moment. Oh yeah. So if 100%. you're training lots of times a week, that's so many hours that you're present. And what that does for your mind, for your soul, for your spirit, for your body is like, yeah, you're zenned out by the end of the week because you've spent more time being present. Um, and yeah, I think for those like for those that don't have sport in their life, they're missing that opportunity. But I've now trying trying to work out. Okay, if it's not sport, if it's not hockey 10 times a week that's making me present and putting me in flow state, what else can? Well, if you do take up any form of martial <laughs> art, you are probably the most purest of presentness because if you're not present, <laughs> you're getting punched yeah. in the face. <laughs> you're getting hurt. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those things. <laughs> it's also because you're not connected to anything. Like you're not have to look at a screen. It's any mm. effort work. On just like you have to work on the skill, like it's you don't have a choice if, like I said, like you, if you're sparring, you got to focus on the your opponent and what what he's doing, and you got to think what you're going to do next, and it's a big mm. mind game of chess because yeah, is he is he throwing a feint? Is he going for it? Or you know, is he going to throw a kick? How am I going to reply? Am I am I in a position where I can put him in the corner and I can wail on him? I guess and it's all different things like that. Have you heard of um, Miyamoto, Miyamoto Musashi? No. no, he's a um, sword saint from the 1500s in Japan. And he was a, he fought over 60 fights to the death and won them all. Um, massive, crazy life in Japan. Um, walked, challenged all these people, played all these different mind games with the different people who he was going to fight with. At the end of all of it, he, reclus- he became a recluse. He, went up to this um, to this cave and wrote the Book of Five Rings. So, and it was all about, um, mm. was nothing about like the art of fighting itself. It was all about his philosophy, which, which this book became his Bible for his students, was about like poetry, writing, um, all the different arts. And it was all about becoming a whole person. So it wasn't just about the fighting was, was the training. It was about, you know, being able to a true martial artist was being able to like take a breather and being able to speak well, like being able to communicate effectively, have poetry, art, all this sort of stuff as well. So it has a book as well, which I've read. It's not that long. That ties in all very nicely with this podcast episode. Mm. I'll have to um, have a read of it. It's yeah, very good. Very curious interesting. to read that. It, is, mm. yeah. it doesn't go anything, not in about not doesn't have anything to do with his like fighting or anything like that. It was, it was just a mm. bit from I've learned before, but it was all about um, the philosophy of how to live, which was he taught it. And then funny thing, he finished it a week later, he died. <laughs> yeah. So he had, I don't know, cancer, some uh, sort of cancer, but yeah. But he, yeah, right. he, he became a recluse because he's young. I think he's one of his, his only son passed away. So he, six months he spent mm. in a cave in a, as a recluse and wrote this book. It's quite interesting. Hmm. I'll definitely yeah. have to give that one a read. So, so you say now, would you, I don't know, maybe five, ten years down the track, would you ever pick up a hockey stick and play, pick up 
pick me up hockey <laughs> or anything like that? Or is it all gone now? Um, I've uh, ebbed and flowed a little bit with the answer to this over, um, over the course of this year. Um, I sort of, I was thinking that um, I'd move to Europe next year and, and go play over there and, you know, get paid, still play somewhat professionally um, and see where that would take me. But, but I'm really curious to understand myself away from hockey and what this being, this body can do without that identity. Um, So that's sort of guiding me at the moment. I, look, I'm sure in five years if I want to, yeah, go have a little hit of club hockey, I might go and do that. Um, But, yeah, for, for the foreseeable future, I'm, yeah, taking a big big step away from that whole world yeah for sure and you you said earlier about your yoga do you find that that's that you're able to be present in that and take your mind away from everything else yeah oh yeah that's sort of where I had this realization I was quite I was really quite um disheartened and maybe had a bit of depression over the fact that I wasn't going to get this flow state experience anymore. And then I was on a yoga retreat and I just remember, like, I just had this vision in the middle of a class and I was, like, going down into, like, chaturanga, so, like, a half push-up kind of thing, and I just saw my hands on the mat and just, like, connected with some sort of spirit. I was like, oh, my God, I'm in flow state. And then I was like, I'm going to like keep experiencing this my whole life like it doesn't just have to be hockey or sport like it definitely shows up in yoga and then I sort of realized yeah it shows up when I'm engrossed in a good book or I'm having a really good conversation and you're just wholly present um but yeah yoga is certainly a really good tool for that for me hmm. that's interesting because I even now thinking back to when I was younger and then I did my karate when I was younger very like primary school into high school kind of years and then when once I left school and went to uni I, I ended up finished playing sport by then and obviously when I moved into coaching sport you don't have time then to play sport yourself and then I moved over to Perth and then I was kind of thinking like well I'm working out and then I'm coaching but I don't do anything for us like you know I'm not getting doing that flow state kind of thing myself I'm not really Mm. You know, lifting weights and, and running or doing whatever type of cardio is some form of struggle, but it's not really, I'm not like, I'm still on my phone in the gym, you know, I'm not, I'm still connected to to the world. And then I was like, well, I'll go. And then I was watching MMA at that stage. I was like, well, I do want a Muay Thai class. And then I feel like it was like when I first started getting back into it, I was like, this is it. Like, you know, like I've, for some mm. reason I've come, I've done a full circle. Like I did the martial arts when I was younger. And now that like I'm older adult, I'm back. To where it started. I remember how much I hated doing it when I was younger, and Mum and Dad yeah. used to just force me to go because I guess I know maybe it was a bit of a struggle thing that they wanted me to do, and it was all about just get you back. But like it was just keep working, keep working, 
it took me almost six years to get my back belt. So it's one of those things yeah. you have to struggle to and, and get it. And then you see the rewards, I guess, now that I'm no 27. <laughs> and you see the value, I guess, of, of hard work and, and persistence. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Do you ever kind of, I don't know, maybe now have a kind of goals or have anything that we work towards, but it's challenging, but you afraid to work towards or like if that kind of makes sense? Um not really, I think. <laughs> maybe if, maybe if I was still... the question better. How about if something that you wanted to do, but maybe you're too afraid to try? Um, I don't think I fall into that category of people. <laughs> I think <laughs> I generally um yes step towards things that um yeah if there's something I want to do I'm generally pretty good at finding a way to go about doing it um but for me at the moment I'm trying not to do that in that I get these ideas like yeah I want to do this I want to do that um and it can be quite obsessive or it's really ambitious and it's ego driven um and I'm just trying to take a step back of not chasing things um and being a bit more okay with just like right now Um, do you still feel like you have that ego you know like when you were younger do you still feel like it's kind of there kind of yeah I'm like I'm I'm just I'm a really ambitious person and I want to save the world and change the world and like do all these big things and I definitely have a brain full of ideas um but I just like I'm since finishing sport I'm sort of realizing how much in a lot of aspects of my life my ambition and my ego doesn't serve me that well like it makes me more anxious and more unhappy about who I am and where I am um so I'm just trying to like quieten that ambition and drive still be still be guided by things I'm passionate about but just calm it down a little don't need a don't need to change the world <laughs> <laughs> oh you can never it's, it's interesting <laughs> so you or you constantly you have to kind of put yourself the situation where you kind of have to just relax, just reminding yourself where you are, who you are, where you are, not to get too ahead of yourself, I guess. Yeah, because I think, like, yeah, even even with my business, I had really big goals and ambitions for that, but it's been bloody hard. And, mm. I mean, the vision that I have, maybe it won't come to fruition. Maybe it's not meant to come to fruition. Um, so... You know, do I keep trying to chase that to like satisfy an ego of how it should turn out, um, or do I pivot and be okay to pivot? And same with hockey. Like, I don't, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. Yeah, swear, swear, go for it. <laughs> like, fuck, that didn't turn out at all how I wanted it to. Mm. Like, my ego is massively hurt by that seven-year-old Lily is so upset is heartbroken that she hasn't gone to the Olympics I want to be the best player in the world that was that's that's not gonna happen that wasn't gonna happen but 
this vision of everything I thought hockey would be has not, it hasn't, it hasn't turned out that way. Um, and that, yeah, part for parts of me that still really hurts. Um, for other parts of me, I'm stoked about what I've, what I've done and the decisions I've made. Um, so yeah, just trying to calm the mind these days. <laughs> yeah. It's so interesting. Do you think that, you know, being like having dreams like that when you're really young is kind of not bad, but like, you know, kind of gets in the way of what can happen when you're old. Like, is obviously you say you're seven years old, but when you're seven, what do you really know about, yeah. you know, you know yeah, you just because you're good at hockey, just because you're good at hockey when you're seven and you really want to be the best doesn't mean, like, it's, it's still okay not to be the mm. best. Yeah, I think um, I'm like I'm sure there were heaps of young girls who who had that dream as well and and do even now. And I think it's totally fine to to have that dream and have any sort of hopes and dreams when you're younger. Um, Maybe holding on to the dream for too long is that a something that I think maybe. Placing your worth on that dream. Yeah. That's, I think, where we all go wrong. Yeah. Um, and that's what I'm looking at changing. Uh, so whether I am the best hockey player, whether I have the best business, whether I become the best mum, like that's what I, like. Yeah. Let's, let's not place my value on those things. Just be a mm. good person, but it's so hard because you, you still have to place Maybe we're thinking about it too much. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's um it's definitely hard in the in the world of sport, um because yeah you're driven to perform to be the best to win, um and I think when you're in that world, hundred percent like be driven by that, but don't let that success or failure like define the value you have of yourself because you're. You still have value whether you're good at sport or not, whether you win an Olympic gold medal or not. You are still a valuable person to your parents, mm. to whoever in your life. Yeah. Well, so we'll take a sidestep from that. Where, <laughs> If you were to have dinner with any four people, who oh, would you choose and why? I was curious. I was like, oh, does he have any, um, like, questions I should, like, this that I should prepare some good answers no, to? No, I don't I want the thought process. I want you to think um, Okay, four people. Can they be dead or alive? Yeah, anything. Yeah, you can bring them back. You can bring them back. Okay. Number one, Anne Frank. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, quick fun. reason for that. 13-year-old girl wrote one of the most amazing pieces of literature, mind-blowing, mm. um, in really hard circumstances. Um, number two. Number two. Um... Glennon Doyle, who is an author, who wrote a book. She's written a few books, but one of her books is called Untamed. And that is where I first read that quote um, from Upstream. Uh, Amazing author, really pushing for women to not be trapped by the cages we get put in. Um, 
Number three. Um, oh, these are good questions. <laughs> um, this is good because I haven't had those two have not been mentioned yet. So it's good. Okay. Um, Keep it going. Okay. Oh, a hundred percent. Steve Carell. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm just funny. a huge, oh, huge Office fan. I, I'm. Oh, the Office. Yes, yeah. I've watched it like a million times over. Like when I'm anxious, <laughs> I just, I just put on the Office, and he, I love him, and he just sounds like such a nice guy, and I just love to yeah. sit down, and have a cup of tea with him. <laughs> yeah, nice. Uh, and then number four. This is it. Mm. You don't have any more. I know, I know. Um, I'm just going to say, oh, this is hard. Um, just probably on more of like a spiritual path would be this woman called Julie Pyatt. Mm -hmm. She is Rich Roll's wife. I'm not sure if you've listened to the Rich Roll podcast. Anyway, he's an ultra marathon runner and he has this epic podcast called the rich roll podcast yeah. and it's a lot around it's on everything really but yeah. well-being mindset spirituality food anyway okay. um his wife julie pyatt um she's just a bit of like a spiritual guru and i'm just quite curious about the work that she does and i i just love to meet her and See what would happen. Where would you go? To, where would <laughs> yeah. you go for dinner? Oh, where would I go? It was that part of the question. No, um, no, but this is just an extra part. Um. Oh, it would be different for everyone, or do we all have to be together? You all have to be together. It's a big dinner, like a. Okay, we would dinner. all go somewhere in Italy, to like a little hillside, and have oh, yeah. some like freshly produced meal that we've all cooked together. That's just come from the farm that's over there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some cold meat, prosciutto, and cheese, yeah. provolone cheese. Mm, yum. That's yeah. perfect. That's wine, red wine. Yeah. Perfect. That's it. That sounds awesome. That's probably the best. Oh, yeah. Sorry for everyone else who's just thinking. <laughs> so that's probably the best one. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, you, you mentioned um, that you like to put on the office when you're um, feeling anxious. and that. Is that, <laughs> Do you have anything else that you like to do to take yourself away from when you're feeling stressed, anxious, or anything like that? Um, yeah, so office is definitely a good one, but it's a bit of a it's a bit of a crutch, I'd say. I'm not sure <laughs> it's the best thing to do. Um, because it just yeah, it takes you away from reality. Um but I I come back to this um advice my sister once gave to me. It's from a guru, I don't know who, but um oh yeah, often when I get anxious and 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 um creating stories and narratives in my head that aren't real. Mm. Uh, she says, come back to the knowns and work out what is known and unknown. So sometimes when I'm like worrying about something, I'm like, okay, what are the actual, what are the actual facts of, of, of the story? Um, and, and just try and separate what I've like created, what my anxiety has created versus what's actually real. Um, so that's I found I found that really helpful over the last little while, um, and yeah, journaling is just a really good one for me as well to sort of 
um, just get things out of my head and onto paper because there's a lot happening in this head. <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting, breaking it down. Do you write them down? Uh, no, most of the time, like with knowns and unknowns, I often just, I say it out loud, like I have to tell myself out loud what the facts are. <laughs> Do you feel like like going through what you've gone through, having not, going, having gone through everything you've gone through, knowing what you know now and putting yourself back into the Hockey Australia camp a couple of years ago, would you be able to cope better or do you think it was sort of gone the same way? Um, yeah, I'm going to say it would have gone the same way because I don't think it was about coping. I think it was an unhealthy environment yeah. that you either just – and I don't, I don't want to completely – um, I don't, I'm not wanting to, to disrespect any of my teammates but I, because I, I, I do have a lot of respect for, for the girls that are still there. But um, I think to survive, you've just got to, like, close your eyes, yeah. head down, bum up, and not, and not that they don't care but just be so driven by your goals. Um, yeah, okay. Be more so... Slow. Yeah, Maybe, I don't think it would have been different. Yeah, it's a bit more of a you look after you kind of you look after yourself type of thing. Mm. Yeah, mm. interesting. Anyway, last question to finish off. This one comes from Uncle Frank, who's the number one listener of the podcast. Hello, <laughs> Uncle Frank. Um, he sent hey, this Frank. question. He sent <laughs> he sent through a whole bunch of questions a while back when he he listened to um, when I, when the podcast first came out. He listened to about a whole bunch of them over the Easter break. And he sent me a list of this long text messages and questions. <laughs> and I said, I can't ask all of them, but I can ask one. Are you ready for okay. it? Yeah. If nothing was impossible and money wasn't an object, what would you do? I would. <laughs> I would set up a village in New South Wales with my family where we all lived on this shared land and grew our own vegetables and we had a yoga retreat. And then I would do the same thing in France with my partner's family <laughs> so that we could commute between the, the two Dude. and just live on the land like and serve our souls. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's cool. We got homestead, live off the land. That's yeah, great. that's the that's the vision. There's something, um, yeah, something like that. Land is expensive yeah. in Australia, but money's not an object, <laughs> so don't have to worry about it. So. I know, but in yeah, yeah in so life. in in that, in in that scenario, <laughs> yeah, in real life, far out. Yeah, far out. <laughs> uh, well, do you want to leave? Do you want to sh um, shout anyone out? Do you want to say anything? Mention um, anyone? Thank I'll you. I'll say, hey, mom. Hey, mom. You're probably hey, gonna listen. I'll send it to you. Um, I don't know if anyone's listening. If any hockey girls are listening, hi, hello, and I, I hope you're doing well. Um, and yeah, thanks for having um, me, Matt. It's been awesome. No worries. I love having you. Mention um, where where can we find you at Lily? Oh, okay. You can find me on Instagram, which I never use, at Lily Brazzle. <laughs> so if you do want to contact me, send me a lovely email that I can read over a cup of tea. You can yep. email me at lilykbrazzle at gmail.com. That's L-I-L-Y. You, you, know, you can find my name on that thing. Yep. Um, yeah, find me on Instagram. You can find oh, on email, sorry. You can find my business on Instagram, though, Stature Australia. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, you can find my writing at lilybrassel.com.au. Do you have a podcast as well? I think I saw you had a podcast. Yeah, I was running a podcast through Stature. It's called The State of Us. Um, I was running that through um, most of 2020 and that was looking at um, interesting people who gave shit about the world. <laughs> oh, there you go. Perfect. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. appreciate your time. Um, thank you very much. Um, I got a very interesting, very in-depth podcast. I loved every minute of it. Um, I love your writing. So if you, I think you mentioned some of your writing memoirs or anything like that. Um, I love to read them. So whenever they come out, hit me up. Um, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And thank you, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks.